Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all together. Uh, man, it is a new day in the life of our church. Uh, some of you are uh, saying, Pastor, do you think you're uh, making a big deal about this? Uh, yes, I am. I really am. Uh, because I think this is a great new day in the life of our church. It is so good to be together as one faith family, and it is good to see everyone together. Um, I've got to get used to looking around here for a moment because some of you are sitting in some new places today. So uh, thank you for that. Um, you're adding to my uh, short attention span already as it is, as I'm looking for you. So uh, anyway, I appreciate you helping with that little problem that I have because now I see you in a new spot and I want to wave to you and say, oh, hey, you know, it's good to see you. But anyway, I am praising God for uh, you being here for the time that we now have together and how God will speak and move through our time. We are starting a new series here in 2019. We are actually going to be studying through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles and I hope you do. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah. Now, as we're studying through Nehemiah together, I want to encourage you to continue to read through Nehemiah. And if you get to the end and we're still studying it, then go back and read it again. In fact, I would also encourage you to uh, incorporate the book of Ezra um, as you read through Nehemiah as well because of the overlap that happens between the prophet and teacher that is Ezra and the great leader that is Nehemiah. Because I think what you'll quickly see is we, like Nehemiah, have found ourselves in a season of rebuilding. And we've come to a time as a church where it is time for us to rebuild. Now, I don't know about you, but here's the question I want to ask us today is this. Where do we turn when it seems that all else is failing? I mean, think about it for a moment. Where do we turn to when, for whatever reason, we look and we turn on the news and there's another senseless killing or another senseless act of violence, whether it's here in our country or all over the world? Where do we turn when we pick up the news articles that tell us that our politicians can't agree on anything? Where do we turn when it seems like all we're doing sometimes as a family is flipping a coin and simply hoping for the best? Where do we turn when we read the news that our educators all over this country are leaving their jobs at a faster rate than any other time in the history of our country? Maybe we need to make it more personal for a moment. Where do we turn when we get the bad diagnosis? Where do we turn when our bills start adding up? What do we do when we receive bad news, whether it's about ourselves or about our family? What do we do when it seems like it just continues to rain and rain and rain upon our personal life and it just never seems to slow down and all of a sudden we become overwhelmed with all that is happening in our home? Where do we turn or who do we turn to when we're trying to rebuild a church and we are desperate to get people to join in, to help, to volunteer, to serve, to lead? Where do we go to when all seems lost? Or better yet, who do we turn to when all seems 
lost. You see, too often times when we find ourselves in these moments, we have a tendency to turn inward. We have a tendency to want to fix things ourselves. And we realize that as we're trying to fix our problems ourselves, there is more to the problems that we could ever begin to imagine or even handle. And so we become frustrated. We become overwhelmed. We simply want to throw up our hands and we decide that we no longer want to help ourselves or help anyone around us. And there are even times where we get so frustrated by our circumstances and what's happened to us that we could even run away from the people and the situations that love us and care for us. It's almost like we can take the mentality of, I don't want to deal with this, so I'm just going to block it like I do people on social media. Or to borrow an older phrase, I don't like what I see happening here and I don't like the situation I'm in and I don't like the people I'm around because they don't agree with me, therefore I'm getting out of the sandbox, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. You see, too oftentimes we have the attitude of running away. Well, if you've ever read through Nehemiah, you will clearly see that this is exactly where we find the Israelite nation, particularly here in Nehemiah at the beginning of his book. So if you are in Nehemiah right now, I would invite you to just stay right there on the first page in chapter 1 and let us read together as Nehemiah receives the news that he did not want to hear. So if you would, we are going to begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you would and you're able, stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now this is Nehemiah writing in Nehemiah chapter 1. He says these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. For the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said to God, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, um, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. 
whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for the opportunity that we have to to be in this place and to study your word. Father, I pray that as we take these next few moments to study Nehemiah chapter 1, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in the worship through your word. Father, soften our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to your truth. And God, may you and you alone be glorified today. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, to set the scene for you, we clearly see that Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He has been exiled elsewhere. And we are going to learn, we are going to learn all through Nehemiah that Nehemiah was a man whose strength of character was forged from the study of God's word. In fact, Nehemiah would rely on the living God to answer his prayers because he knew from the word what God had promised to do. So when we look back at verse 1, we see that this book was written by Nehemiah himself. In fact, it's not until you get to uh, chapter 8 that you see the narrative changes from first person to third person. However, since we don't see a new heading, we can clearly assume that it is still Nehemiah writing here, and he simply switched the narrative to third person. But what Nehemiah does next here in verse 1 is he tells us where he is and what time of year he is in and what has happened to the city that he dearly loves. We learn from Nehemiah that it is the month of Chislev, which would be modern day November or December. He tells us that he is in the 20th year, referencing the reign of Artaxerxes, which began around 465 B.C., So this would put Nehemiah's writing around the year of 445 B.C. Now, if you know anything about biblical timeline, you would also know that the prophet Ezra had already arrived in Jerusalem around 458 B.C., according to Ezra chapter 7. And so Nehemiah is serving in exile under the king of Persia. And what we know of Nehemiah is he is serving in Susa, which would have been the winter home or the winter residence of the king of Persia. We see then in verse 2 and verse 3 that Nehemiah is visited by Hanani and certain men of Judah. And from that conversation, we learn that Jerusalem has been left in ruin. The walls have been destroyed. The gates have been burned to the ground. And according to Ezra 4, this was done by the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. You see, they went to the king of Persia, to Artaxerxes, and demanded that the work of the rebuilding of Jerusalem be stopped. And so the king agreed with them and gave them permission to take word back to the Jewish nation, back to the Israelite nation, to tell them that the work of the rebuild of Jerusalem must stop. And so they were told, and then they were forced 
out of Jerusalem. And as they left Jerusalem, from what we see in Ezra, we see that the city was then burned, destroyed, the walls crushed, and the gates burned to ash. Do we understand the frustration in that moment that the Israelite nation must have felt? Do we understand the anguish of Hanani and the, Jew, the men of Judah when they came to Nehemiah? Do we understand even the hurt that Ezra must have felt knowing that the work that they were trying to do had all of a sudden not only been stopped, but had been undone? You know, I've often thought of what my reaction would be, and the only thing I could come up with is this, is if you've ever had children before or grandchildren, chances are you've probably had a designated playroom in your house. Now, in my house, we have a designated playroom because here's the truth. It's not fun stepping on toys barefooted in the middle of the night. And so we've designated a room for our kids that is their playroom. 90% of the time, we don't know what happens in that room. As long as the kids come out alive and nothing is broken, we are okay. They can do what they wish in that room. It It is their room. But every so often, we look at our children and we ask them to go to the room and clean up. Or we may not even ask them to do it. We'll go in and do it ourselves. Usually it's me, my wife, and our two older kids that do most of the cleaning. And so our ultimate goal really is to make sure there is still carpet on the floor. And so we start picking up toys, putting them back in their baskets. We start looking at all the puzzle pieces and trying to find out where the puzzle goes with the right puzzle piece. By the way, this is why I no longer like puzzles because I'm picking up so many of them in the kids' room. We all of a sudden then find game pieces from our board games and we're trying to figure out which piece goes where and when and with who. We find costumes and dresses and and play clothes and the kitchen toys that then need to get put back in their proper place. And then all of a sudden we have a moment where we realize, praise God, there is still carpet on the floor. We can vacuum And so we vacuum and we clean and everything looks wonderful. Usually it takes us an hour or so to get this done. But then here's inevitably what happens. We walk out of the room and a three-year-old who shall remain nameless walks into the room with her five-year-old sister who also will remain nameless at this point. And within 20 minutes, the carpet has disappeared. Within 20 minutes, the puzzles are on the ground. Within 20 minutes, there's play clothes everywhere. Within 20 minutes, they pulled out toys that I thought we threw away three years ago. But there they are. And then they come out of the room with a smile on their face. And I'm left wondering what just happened. Am I the only one who's ever been through this before? I mean, it's, it's frustrating as a parent sometimes. It's frustrating as a grandparent. I remember looking in that room with my mom while she was here on our trip, and we both looked at each other, and we're like, we are not going in there. It's frustrating to see the amount of damage that can be done in one room. Now, this is just a toy room. Imagine you're trying to rebuild a city, and then all of a sudden, you were forced to stop the work. You were forced to leave, and then you were forced to watch the walls and the gates be burned and ruined. Imagine the frustration. Imagine the hurt 
And then look at verse 4. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah weeps. He mourns. He fasts. He prays. In other words, we begin to see and understand the passion that Nehemiah has for the kingdom of God. We begin to see and understand the passion that Nehemiah has for the advancement of the gospel. He knew the importance and the priority of Jerusalem and what it meant to God's people. And we see his brokenness because the gospel is not being advanced. You see, there's a lesson here in these four verses that we too need to have the same passion for the kingdom of God. We too need to have the same passion for the word of God. In fact, like Nehemiah, if we love God, which we say we do, and if we desire to see the advancement of the gospel for his glory, then we too will feel a deep sorrow when the advancement of the gospel is halted. I can only hope and pray that we too would turn to fasting to weeping, to mourning. But ultimately, like Nehemiah, I hope that we too would turn to prayer. You see, Nehemiah doesn't do what many of us would have done in that moment. You see, when everything had seemed to have fallen apart, our general tendency as human beings today is to run and fight or to try and fix or to even go back to what we used to know. But not for Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't run. Nehemiah didn't throw his hands up and quit. Nehemiah all of a sudden didn't reminisce about days gone by. No, what Nehemiah did was he turned to prayer first. So in Nehemiah, we learned that there is a time to pray. Through Nehemiah, we learn, according to his prayer in verses 5 through 11, how we are to pray as believers. First, we see this. We first, as we pray, according to Nehemiah, we need to know the one that we pray to. Look with me again in verse 5. Nehemiah says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, Nehemiah knew exactly who he was praying to. He begins with adoration, praising God for who God is. In fact, if you've ever been a part of our Wednesday night prayer services, you will understand that that's exactly, excuse me, that's exactly how we spend, uh, start every service together. We start with adoration for who God is and who God has been for us this week. In fact, I would encourage all of us that as we pray, let us all start with praising God for who he is. In fact, it was Nehemiah who says in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. In other words, Nehemiah is acknowledging the power and the greatness of God. Nehemiah recognizes that though he is under the reign and rule of another king, there is none who is great 
like God. In fact, he goes on to say of God, not only is God the great and awesome God, but he is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In other words, Nehemiah is calling himself to remember the promise of God to his people and to know that the love of God has, will, and will always be shown with consistency in faith to his people. You see, in the midst of ruin, Nehemiah cries out for the love of God to continue and for the love of God to prevail. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You see, Nehemiah calls upon the faithfulness of God. He calls upon the continuous and steadfast love of God. He calls upon the promise of God and the hope that can be found in God. So you see, when we pray, we too need to acknowledge the one that we pray to. It is God alone who is faithful. It is God alone who is steadfast and continuous and consistent with his love. And it is God alone who is the keeper of the promise. As believers, we need to remember the God that we serve. Secondly, we learn from Nehemiah this. Not only should we know the one that we pray to, but we should also be willing to confess sin. Look with me beginning in verse 6. Nehemiah says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. You see, after recognizing the greatness and awesomeness of God, Nehemiah turns his attention to confessing sin. And not just his sin or the sin of his father's house, but also the sin of the house of the nation of Israel. Nehemiah says that we have acted corruptly. In other words, Nehemiah acknowledges here that it is by their own actions, it is by their own sin, it is by their own deplorable situation that Jerusalem the city, the gates, the walls lie in ruin. And they lie in ruin because of the sin of man. I want to tell you a simple truth today, faith family. If we want to see our church rebuild, we have to be willing to not only know the one we're praying to, but we've got to be willing to confess our sin before the Lord. We've got to be willing to lay our sin at the altar, pleading for God's forgiveness. Because here's the reality. It is our sin that puts us in ruin. Nehemiah goes on to say that the sin they've committed, they've committed because they have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that were given by God. 
In fact, when you flip back to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, this is exactly why Ezra says he came to Jerusalem. He says he came to teach all of the law because the people were not getting it. And it wasn't because they weren't getting it because they'd never heard it. It's because they had heard it, they said they understood it, but clearly they didn't want to follow it and they didn't want to understand the true meaning of the word of God. Not only did they not want to get it, but the people of Israel walked away from it. And thus why everything in Jerusalem was in ruin. You see, for us today, when we walk away from the commandments of God, when we walk away from the statutes of God, when we walk away from the word of God, this is when we find ourselves in ruin as well. Too many times we try to act apart from God without prayer. Too many times we try to act apart from God without seeking the word. And all we do in those moments is we find ourselves in an utter mess and in sometimes in complete ruin. Rather, we need to be a people who not only confess our sin, but confess the fact that we are in sin because we have turned away from the commandments of God. If we are to be a people who teach the word of God faithfully, then we also have to be a people who study the word of God faithfully, which means we have to know and understand and be willing to confess our sin before God. This leads to my final point here in Nehemiah. Not only does Nehemiah teach us to know the one we pray to and to confess our sin, but finally he teaches us that we are to know the word. Look with me again um, in the second half, or excuse me, down in verse 9. Nehemiah says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Now, he's, he's not talking about his commandments and the people returning to Nehemiah. He is repeating back the promise of God. Now, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now notice what Nehemiah does here. Nehemiah acknowledges the word of God. He knows the word of God. In fact, he calls upon the Lord here in this passage to remember the word. In Hebrew, he is literally saying, God, remember the promise that you gave us. Nehemiah is referencing back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26, just to name a few, in order to remind God of the promise that he made to those who keep his commands. You see, Nehemiah knew the word of God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And listen to this. And give success 
to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So God, so Nehemiah is not just reminding God, he is saying it for himself to remind God of the promise. And then he uses the same phrase, give success, that we see in Psalm chapter 1 verse 3, which says this, in all that he does, speaking of the righteous man, in all that he does, he prospers. You see, Nehemiah understands that when we are faithful to the word of God, God will bless, we will prosper, because we will find ourselves in the midst of the will of God. Now, let me add a footnote here. You did not just hear your pastor say that if you read the word daily and you are faithful to God, then God will bless you financially. You didn't hear those words come from my mouth today. You didn't hear the words from my mouth today. You didn't hear this come from me where I said, if you were faithful to God, he will give you a bigger home. If you are faithful to God, he'll give you a nicer car. If you are faithful to God, you will be able to purchase the Tampa Bay Rays, a new stadium, and then you will become the owner, and then you will make them a winning team, and we will no longer have to watch the Yankees win. You did not hear me say that. That's called prosperity gospel. Rather, what Nehemiah is saying here is this. He's saying... If you are faithful to the word, if you are obedient to the will of God, God will honor that. God will bless it. But notice he didn't put a timetable on it. Notice he didn't say what the blessing would be. He does say here that he would give success. But the reality is we may never see that success. Because only the success is known by God. We may not see it until we are in glory with God. But if we could be honest for a moment, which is what I think Nehemiah would say to us, if we want to call uh, being faithful and obedient to God a success, here's what it looks like. It's when we follow the will of God, we're obedient to the word of God, and we see that all that happens is for our good, but ultimately for God's glory. That is success. We just simply need to be faithful. But notice that Nehemiah here, he's not doing anything fancy. He's not using any magical words. He is simply praying that God will do what he already said he was going to do according to Scripture. Notice Nehemiah doesn't mourn like someone without hope. Rather, he is mourning because he loves God's kingdom. He has a passion for God's word more than anything else. You see, for us today, we too need to love the word of God. We too need to be students of the word of God. We, need, we too need to be students of the book, and therefore we need to spend time in the word of God. What does it say about us as American evangelicals, as Christians in the United States, when we spend more time with our favorite teams, our favorite shows, and even our favorite music and our favorite politicians, but we never make time for the Word of God? What do we know better? The statistics and standings of our favorite teams, the songs that we have memorized, or the contents of the Word of God. In a world where we have no problem finding our favorite article, our favorite meme, and we know exactly how to post it on our favorite social media website, 
what if we had to do the same thing with a blank Bible that was laid in this room and fill it with the Word of God because of how well we knew it? Can we say that we know it? What grieves us more? Is it when our favorite team loses the game? Is it when our favorite political party loses the election? Or does it grieve us more hearing of Christians being persecuted in faraway places? Does it grieve us to hear that there are parts of the world today where Christians are no longer welcome? Does it grieve us at all to know that there's a part of the world where there are Christians, where half of their church congregation currently sits in prison while the remnant remain faithful? Does that even grieve us? Does it concern us? Does it concern us that, that there are those in this world who are trying to halt the advancement of the gospel? Are we even bothered by it a little? You see, as Christians, we should be like Nehemiah. You see, when we pray like Nehemiah, we need to know the word. We need to be able to rest upon the promises of God. And when we hear that the gospel advancement is trying to be halted, then it should grieve us. It should drive us to our knees. It should call us to prayer. Now, Nehemiah does something interesting here. He closes with this phrase. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. In these final words in chapter 1, we learn that Nehemiah is not living the perfect life. He's not living a life that is his own. He is an exile in Persia, but despite his circumstance, he still trusts God. He still loves God, and he still loves the Word. What we learn here is that Nehemiah is actually in a highly placed political position where he is inevitably the taste tester for the king. Therefore, the king trusts him like no other person because the reality is the king's life hangs in the balance of what Nehemiah selects and chooses for the king's table. So you see, this is a high-pressure position that Nehemiah is in, and he knows he cannot fail, and his life depends on it. But in the midst of this responsibility, in the midst of this stress and pressure, in the midst of this type of influence, notice what Nehemiah wanted more than anything else. Through his prayer, we see that Nehemiah wanted to see God for who he is, to study the word faithfully, and to continue to pray. Notice Nehemiah doesn't grumble. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't quit. Notice that Nehemiah never turns away. Rather, Nehemiah starts with prayer. He acknowledges who God is. He willingly confesses sin. And he knows the word. You see, if we want to see change happen, as a church, if we want to see growth happen, then we first need to start with prayer. Prayer is step one in what is needed to rebuild. Let's pray together.